or what some of us might call prophecy. Uh, more uh, properly, it's called uh, eschatology. Um, prophecy is not only something future, but for us, because we believe the Old Testament, it's something in the past as well. Uh, prophecies of Jerusalem's destruction, prophecy of the exile, those are prophecies that were fulfilled in the past. And so when we talk about eschatology, we're talking about uh, the future, and that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, eschatology is made up of two words, uh, eschatos, which is uh, last, and uh, the, uh, the uh, suffix uh, ology, uh, the study of, the study of last things. And Jesus immerses his disciples in this in Matthew 24 and 25, just hours before his death. Uh, his, uh, one of his last messages to them. It's very, very important that we have our hearts wrapped around uh, this theme. Uh, those who do are the most effective for God. Those who forget it oftentimes lack the urgency to get the good news to family, friends, strangers, community, and the world. It's very important in our upcoming days that we take note of this because we start on the 23rd of this month a crusade with Steve Foster. Um, there'll be some of us participating in a crossover April 22nd. And May 1st, we've got mandatory mission trip training. May, uh, May 1st, excuse me, May 21st, Sunday school training with Alan Taylor and then VBS June 4 through 8. Of course, we've got a great day coming for our church family. Uh, the deacons will be recommending that we extend a call to Matt Bartlett to serve as our children and family minister. And I've just got to tell you, I am thrilled with this opportunity. Uh, this, uh, this, th this is right, and I'm grateful. Now, our Harvest Crusade schedule is such that we need to engage in a battle, and that battle happens the week before Steve Foster gets here. That battle is commonly known as fasting and prayer. And you see a schedule there, and I want to ask you if you will go through that and find your day that your Sunday school class uh, is being asked to fast and pray. Now, if you can't that day, choose another day. That's, that's fine. But if you can join with your class or some other day in fasting and prayer, if your doctor will let you, we're asking and urging you to do that. Jesus said, this kind does not come out except without fasting and with fasting and prayer. If your preschool children are youth worker, uh, your class is not found there. Instead, you're categorized on Wednesday, Sunday school workers and preschool children and youth. So would you take a pen and find your Sunday school class and underline the um, day that your uh, Sunday school class is fasting and praying. Now some of you deacons, you've got a deacon team fasting one day and your Sunday school class the next. You need to go twice. The staff's not going to do that. But uh, we, uh, no, you choose one of those days. If you want to do both, that's fine too. But that's the battle. Uh, if we will fast and pray and go gangbusters over pleading with God for the souls of men and women and boys and girls, God is gracious enough to hear. And they, uh, this issue is important enough to fast and to pray. Now that's the battle. The cleanup operation is when Steve Foster gets here. And what happens when Steve Foster is here will depend greatly on fasting and prayer and just how much love we've shown to lost people by inviting them to come. Let me ask you something. Can you imagine a family member or a friend or a neighbor or even a stranger, one of our members invites, comes to the Lord that week and you haven't participated? 
And none of your family, friends, people that you know come to Christ. In fact, let me ask you, is there anyone going to heaven that has met Jesus because of you? This is why we create opportunities. Most would have to hang their head in shame and say, I have absolutely done nothing to get people here. And frankly, I've got to admit, I just don't give a rip. Okay, here's your chance. Now, just imagine if you do care, if you just can't stand for family, friends, neighbors, and strangers to be lost without Christ. You've got that burden on your heart, just like God does. Just like Jesus did. Let's say you've got that. And you invite them to come and they hear the gospel and they open their heart to the Lord and say yes to Jesus. Now, can you imagine what that'll be like? And, and what if just they, they get provoked and stirred enough to start considering it and maybe in a few weeks and months they, they ask you. I remember one time, uh, well, my senior year in high school, started off a humanities class, uh, a high upper level English class in our high school with Mr. Holman. And we started that semester with three atheists in the class and uh, we had about five of us from our youth ministry in that particular class now what in the world I was doing in there I don't know high achieving did not fit me at that time in my life and still doesn't but I was in and we had roundtable discussions where we were free to just blow open the door and all the members of our youth group would start off with the subject and run quickly to the cross of Christ as quickly as we could and uh, by the end of the year, two of those had been saved and baptized in our church. And the other one had started believing in God. And uh, it was, was making progress that way. But I'll never forget John Lyons. I went to sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade with him. And John came. And the preacher preaching that revival was Bill Sturm from South Georgia. Now, this is on the West Coast, and he'd make a West Coast tour. And uh, Bill was not what you would call relevant. Bill was anything but relevant and didn't want to be relevant. Did not want to be relevant at all. But John came that night and came the whole week, in fact. And I remember meeting him, I think, either on Tuesday or Wednesday night of this crusade that Bill was preaching. And John looked different that evening. And I went by to greeting, and uh, he said, David, let me ask you something. What, uh, how do you know if you've been saved? Well, I was a little slow back then, and it's only gotten worse. And I said, well, John, the way you know is you ask the Lord. You know, you give your life to him. You turn from anything keeping you from Christ, and, and you trust his death and resurrection, and you invite him to save you. You ask him to do it. He said, well, I did that last night. And I could tell. And all the labor and all the tears and all the prayer and all the aggravation we put up with people from that class was worth it because John Lyons came to Jesus came to Christ. Now that was something because John was somewhat normal, but there was another guy in the class that was not, not normal at all. Very, very unusually awkward. And in fact, his, he, was, he was a genius, but his face was, was misshaped. I think there was some kind of physical syndrome going on there. His name was Alex. In fact, in the superlative awards, I ended up getting the award for the student most likely to save the world. Alex came after me and got the award for most likely to blow it up. <laughs> and Alex had a good time with it. He was fine with it, as awkward as he was. But Alex came to Jesus one Sunday morning because uh, uh, Wanda Jackson and I and 
uh, Susie Jones and some of the others in our youth ministry worked on him and wouldn't give, it didn't matter how he looked. And he, he was really somewhat frightful to look at. And I want to be delicate and I want to be kind. But, but it was tough. It was so disshaped. And it's the kind of person you'd walk by and you'd see, you'd take a double take and you just couldn't get past looking at him. And he was very awkward and very odd in everything, but Jesus loved him and saved him at this little bitty omission church, Lamore First Southern Baptist Church, probably the most irrelevant Christian church on the West Coast. And those, those, those kids got saved. Can I tell you something? I just love telling you that story now, and it's more than 30 years later. Wouldn't you like to be able to tell somebody? Okay? So get on here and mark your... I'm, I'm not kidding. Everybody take out your form and mark your Sunday school class on prayer. How many of you have done that? Uh, okay, let's do it again. I'm serious. We're not moving forward until you mark where your Sunday school class is. We're not, we're not moving forward. Y'all think I'm joking. God didn't call a pastor here for you to ignore him. Now get out your list and mark. I'm going to persecute you into anxiety if you don't uh, cooperate. And then the services. The cleanup operation. I want you to look where your Sunday school class is responsible for, for filling up the worship center. Okay? You've got either Monday or Tuesday night. Yeah, ask, ask me later if you don't mind. And then Wednesday night, we've got a family night supper at 6 and then a uh, family night service at 7 o'clock. If you have family within 180 miles, get them here. We'll break loose around 8 o'clock. They can be home by 11. They, they weren't going to go to sleep till then anyway. And this is the most important place you can be. Now, uh, 180 miles from here to there. Let's see, that's up to Charlotte all the way down to, I mean, even further south than Columbus, all right? Or uh, from Rome, Georgia down to, uh, I guess, Hinesville or so. So um, whatever you can do to get them here on that Wednesday night. And um, we'll provide the meat and dessert and drinks, if you'll bring something, a side dish for your family and four more, that will be a great help. Now, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus addresses some, but not all of the large issues of eschatology, the study of last things. There is the great tribulation, and there is the antichrist in chapter 24, verse 15. And then there's a second coming, repeated several times. And lots of uh, exhortations to be ready. One of the largest issues Jesus does not address here in this text happens to be the bodily resurrection of believers. When the Lord shall descend with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise, and those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet him in the air. He does not address that here any more than he addresses the Gentiles' equal status with Israel in his salvation, as Paul does in Ephesians 3 or any more than he addresses the church by name in Matthew. Now, he alludes to all three, but there's not a lengthy, even a paragraph exposition on those subjects in Jesus or the prophets. Now, do you know what the New Testament calls those kinds of subjects, and those three in particular? A mystery. Now, a mystery in the New Testament is the exact opposite of a mystery. That's the best way to understand it. It was a mystery alluded to, hinted at in the Old Testament that becomes very clear in the New Testament. The church, 
Jesus only mentions the church by name one time, Matthew 16, 18, and then leaves it alone. And, and then um, the bodily resurrection of believers, and then the Gentiles equal status with uh, Israel. Those last two in Ephesians 3, and uh, the bodily resurrection in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. Jesus does not address those. Now, in eschatology, he does not address the bodily resurrection of believers extensively like he does the tribulation and like he does other elements of prophecy because the bodily resurrection is a mystery. And he leaves it up, the prophets and Jesus, leave that up to the New Testament authors, especially Paul. Paul elaborates on those three mysteries. Now, here's the point I'm trying to make. The second coming of Christ is not a mystery. It has large bodies of information and large numbers of verses and chapters in the Old Testament dedicated to it and in the New Testament. So, the second coming of Christ is never called a mystery like the bodily resurrection of believers is in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. Therefore, the second coming of Christ is not the same as the Lord appearing in the air to raise believers from the dead. These are not the same events. The second coming of Christ happens at the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennium kingdom. The bodily resurrection of believers happens at some other time. I believe it happens before the tribulation. But it cannot happen at the end of the tribulation at the second coming. The two are not the same and it is excluded, these two are excluded from being confused or conflated by the fact that the bodily resurrection is a mystery and the second coming of Christ dominates both testaments. So don't confuse the second coming of Christ. There, there is not a two-stage coming of Jesus Christ. Oh no, no, no. When Jesus raises us from the dead, believers, he doesn't come back to the earth. We don't meet him on the earth. Where do we meet him? In the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Now what an absolutely disappointing thing if these two are the same. He calls us up and we meet him on the air and here we are burgeoning and, and, and lunging for him. He says, hold on just a minute. We've got to go right back to fight Armageddon. No, that's not what the text says. It nowhere indicates that anywhere at all. So do not confuse the second coming of Christ and the bodily resurrection of believers, which some call the rapture. Now there's another mistake some people make. And they say, and usually their venom is directed at people who believe like I believe on this, but they'll oftentimes say, the word rapture's not used in the Bible. The word rapture's not used in the Bible. And therefore, that's supposed to prove it's not a biblical subject. Uh, that really is not true. The word rapture is the Latin word raptura, which is found in the Latin version of the Bible that dominated Christian theology and thought in Europe for a thousand years. Okay? That word in English is caught up. It's caught up with him. And so that's the English. So it's not really technically correct that it's not found in any Bible. Now, I prefer to use the word resurrection because that is an English word that is found in the New Testament. So be very, very careful of confusing the bodily resurrection when we meet the Lord in the air 
with the second coming of Christ, and Jesus doesn't address that here in this text because he is still in the era of the mysteries. He leaves that to the New Testament authors to elaborate upon and to develop. So that leads us to the first subject of missions found in chapter 24 and 25. And by the way, thank you so much for being so faithful. Your attendance has been wonderful. And uh, I'm very, very appreciative of that. Our 4 o'clock attendance has been above the level that we wanted to have uh, to, to provide that service. It's not sunk below it very often at all in the, what, 18 months or so or two years that we've held, had it. And uh, you've done exceptionally well. This is our second to the last study. And uh, we'll finish uh, next, um, next week. Uh, and then our staff for the summer will be uh, studying, uh, or will be leading these studies. And uh, I will be preparing for a study on the book of Revelation starting in the fall and continuing on till the spring. But let's look first at the message of missions. Uh, and this is primarily um, arranged around the notion of signs. There's a question about the signs, and the disciples asked Jesus about signs of the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus answered by giving signs for both, and he used the same signs for the same event. Uh, because we're agents of missions, then, we should know something about the signs. And we should have an appreciation for the study of biblical prophecy and eschatology. Uh, and there, there's a very strong missionary reason why. Uh, David Bosch has remarked that though he really doesn't agree with them and thinks they're a little overheated when he says them, he's talking about us, that he says premillennialists who believe the second comings before the millennium are astonishingly active in missionary projects worldwide. The most active people in missions happen to be those that believe Jesus is actually going to return visibly, bodily, and gloriously. Without your eyes set on that, it's going to be very difficult to develop an urgency for it. And then he talks about, uh, he gives answers about these signs and gets specific with them in beginning in verse 4. He said, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. Now help me with verse 8. All these are the beginning of sorrows. How many of you have birth pains? Okay. Well, the NIV, the ESV, the New American Standard, and a variety of other translations translate this birth pains. It can be uh, translated both ways. Uh, there's a range of definite or uh, translations for this word. Uh, sorrows is used sometimes in the Old Testament for birth pains. And... Um, uh, and, all. and so Jesus says these signs will be like sorrows. Now he talks about wars and earthquakes, famines, and diseases. Now there are some people who've complained through the years, even some commentators, that there is no possible way that these things can serve as signs. Because we've had them in every era and every period of history. So how can you differentiate one period of history from the time right before the Lord comes back with these signs? Every era of history has had these particular signs. So how would you answer that? And I'm, that's not rhetorical. I'd really like to know. By ver using verse 8, how in the world would you answer the question, how can these things serve as signs? Jesus said in verse 8, they will act like what? Birth pains. Does that make sense? Okay, and what happens with birth pains? 
stronger, closer together, more frequency, more intensity, and then the child is born. And Jesus says this is precisely how these signs will act. Now, if you uh, chart wars and earthquakes, diseases and pestilences, Billy Graham has. I've got some resources that actually use um, uh, United Nations studies and uh, information on hunger and war. Uh, the, the Carter Center produced in Atlanta produces information on this as well. If you chart these things, what you will find is that you will find that things rocked along pretty steadily with a slight increase for several centuries and right after World War II, if you were to chart these things, you'd find the chart begins to grow exponentially right after World War II. And so there have been enormous conflict. In other words, the war that was supposed to bring peace to the earth has done anything but. Most of the wars you really never hear about because they're not only nation against nation, like Syria, United States, United States, North Korea, United States, Russia, which, by the way, Vladimir Putin backed down today. Did you hear that? He met with our Secretary of State. Let's say he's a wise man. But uh, in any case, uh, you don't usually hear of the wars that are taking place because they're not only nation against nation, but they are kingdom against kingdom. Smaller entities, tribes that are against one another. And the Carter Center tracks those and has tracked those ever since uh, President Carter established his center there. It's a great resource for that kind of um, information. Now, I want you to note here, Anytime military commanders want to win a war, they maintain the element of surprise. They maintain an element of surprise. I'll never forget, in the first Persian Gulf War, Desert Storm, back in 1990 and 91, Norman Schwarzkopf put uh, teams on the coast to invade Kuwait from coming, going west, coming east, coming from the east, coming there. And Hussein sent his troops out that way. What he didn't know is that Schwarzkopf had other troops on the southern border. And so he got his attention over here and surprised him from coming from the southern border. And anytime you want to win a war, and they all do when they're in one, you maintain the element of surprise. Do you understand what Jesus has just done here? He's given up the element of surprise. He doesn't want a war. He wants reconciliation. And he's about, to, he's about to pour out his life for it. Can't somebody then have a burden and compassion for lost people if Jesus gives up the element of surprise and gets himself slaughtered for it? Certainly we can stretch our souls to reach lost people for Christ. So that, that happens to be the message of missions. Then... There are the limits of missions. Verses 29 through 41, Jesus describes a second coming in verses 29, 30, 37, and 39. And Jesus indicates here that when he comes in his second coming, that's the end of all hope. That's why we have to be ready. That is the end of all hope. That means then that that is the end of missions. Missions and evangelism in which we engage in in this, in this day is not a permanent arrangement. It is an interim. We've had interims here at Beach Haven, interim pastors, interim uh, student and collegiate, interim children and family. Interim. It's an interim arrangement until something permanent comes along. Someone permanent comes along. 
The same is true with missions and evangelism. Missions and evangelism are not the permanent assignment for the people of God. It happens to be the assignment now. But there will come a day when all of this will come to an end and we cannot do it any longer. The reason is, is that we'll be in a kingdom where there aren't any lost people. And that's why Mark Cahill from Stone Mountain wrote his wonderful book on evangelism entitled, One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. You can't. You can't sin and you can't do soul winning. And so that is the end of missions and evangelism. Now, if you back up before the second coming into the book of Revelation, it appears, and I'm going to hold this with a loose hand, but it appears in Revelation that the only people that are saved are Jews. And they preach to other Jews, and there are many that come to the Lord. There doesn't seem to be much optimism in the book of Revelation for the salvation of Gentiles during that time. In fact... What you find is that God pours out his wrath, which frankly, I think, should probably get some people's attention. I mean, they're so miserable under the wrath of God, they cry out, mountains, fall on us, please, we want to die, but God won't let them in some places. And so what you find is that instead of repenting, though, in chapter 6 and 9 and 16, they rage against God and they don't repent. We don't see any Gentile repentance in the book of Revelation. So the age of missions and evangelism of hope in the gospel is coming to an end. It's coming to an end. And so we have to hurry and get the word out now. The Lord could come back April 27th, the day after the crusade. The the, the Lord could come resurrect us before I put a period at the end of the sentence. We've got to hurry and have that kind of urgency. And, and then there are the agents of missions. Jesus emphasized the need for those on earth to prepare for his second coming. He urged his hearers to hurry and prepare themselves for the second coming and judgment. And he emphasized this point. Verse 42 of chapter 24. He says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And then verse 44. Therefore, You also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then verse number 13. Watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Can you imagine what we would do if we did know when he was coming? Well, we just waste our life. What's that? We did the one thing that all humans are experts at and that is procrastinate. There are a few who aren't. But they're very few and far between. And so we're to stay in a constant state of readiness. And uh, Jesus uh, indicates this with some specific images. There's the master of the house in verse number 43. Look what he says. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. I'll never forget when we lived in Alabama, we were robbed. We were gone, and someone broke in through the back door and took some of Michelle's jewelry and some cash and um, other things we probably haven't discovered these many years later. And I'll never forget the sense I had. I was mad, number one. Number two, I think I knew who it was. And number three, um, I felt violated. But if I had known what hour he was coming, I'd been there waiting for him along with the police. 
I would have. And, and you do the same. If, uh, if a thief uh, told you they were coming to your home at 8.30 this evening, you would be ready. You'd be ready. Well, Jesus is saying, if we had known, we would have been ready. What we do know is that we don't know when he's coming. Therefore, we've got to stay in a perpetual state of readiness as it is. Then there's the ruler of the house, verses 45 through 51. He wants his servants to prepare themselves with faithful service. And those who lack this will suffer. Beginning in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servants whom whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. The Lord's work is like a large ancient household. And they had servants there, and they had a head servant, to which God compares all of us. And they were to take the resources of the owner, who oftentimes was away, and arrange them and manage them in such a way that servants were taken care of and the place would prosper. And that is what we are given in the family of faith. Every one of us is like that head servant. We've got something of a spiritual household, and actually a household itself, that we are to manage in a way because God owns it. He's away right now, but he's coming soon, and he will reward those who have done well. Jesus wants us to be ready in that regard. And then there are foolish wedding attendants. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Now, Jewish wedding customs were uh, quite a bit different than ours today. Theirs emphasized uh, family and multi-generational unity. Ours emphasized autonomy of those getting married. And so what they would do is that the families would get together and they would arrange a wedding between a boy and a girl and the time would come. Like, I wish we'd go back to that system. But uh, anyway, um, they would arrange that and the day would come where this was supposed to start. And a year before the actual marriage took place, Zola Levitt says that the young man would come from his home in an official way to meet the father and the young lady, and he would ask for her hand in marriage. And if she was willing, uh, she would agree. And if she was not willing, she would say, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. They would exchange a cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so the father would take that into consideration. But if she agreed, the young man would say, in my father's house are many dwelling places. Uh, and, and they usually didn't set up an independent separate home like we do. They would actually build a room or a dwelling place onto the home of the father. And he would say, in my father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And so he would take about a year to go off and to get the home ready. And when he was finished with it, he would announce a processional, a wedding processional. And he and his friends would journey from this dwelling place attached to his father's house and come to the bride's house, and they would have a wedding procession. She would be followed by uh, girls, uh, attendants, uh, bridesmaids, who would uh, follow, and usually oftentimes happened at night, and they would follow from the young lady's house to uh, the, um, uh, the couple's house at the father's house, and there they would have a wedding feast. See? Well, Jesus says he's coming to get us, and we're going to the marriage feast of the lamb. That's what we're doing. All right? Well, the young lady would have attendants that would attend her to the new home. 
And they would generally do this in the evening. They'd have to have lamps to walk through the street. They were celebratory. They provided light. But they were primarily ceremonial. And Jesus talks here in chapter 25 of some of these attendants who had oil for their lamps. And so as the bridegroom was coming, they were ready when he showed up. But there were some of them who were foolish and they procrastinated. And they did not have oil in their lamps. And so as he was coming, they ran off to find some oil at the last moment. And by the time they arrived back for the processional, the procession was gone. Indoors, behind the wall, the door was shut, and there was no opportunity to get back in. And Jesus says that's how some people are. They're not going to be ready when he comes back. And procrastination in this text receives some of the harshest evaluation that Jesus can give it. That's why we've got to be prepared now. Then there are servants with various talents in chapter 25, verses 14 through uh, 30. They're each given talents, and they are to multiply themselves using their talents according to their gifts and the faith that God gives them. That's the agents of missions. Then there's the Lord of missions in one of the most misunderstood texts of Scripture. Chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Uh, the problem and then the solution. The problem that many have with this text is that they've used this passage to justify social ministry to the poor in general. Now you can use other biblical texts, I think, to arrive at that. I don't think that's what this text is saying. And they usually quote verse number 40 to justify that. Look with me there in verse number 40 and you'll recognize it. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the... Uh, to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Well, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, but the sheep on the right, the goats on the left, and he says to the sheep, uh, Inherit the kingdom of my Father which is prepared for you, for when I was hungry, you fed me. Naked, you clothed me. Sick and in prison, you visited me. And they said, Well, when did we ever do that, Jesus? I, we didn't see you. And he said, Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So Jesus personally identifies with his brethren. And the point is, is that when there's someone who's one of Jesus' brethren in need, we treat them like Jesus. Okay. Then on the other hand, he turns to the goats and he says, uh, Cursed are you, depart from me. Uh, because when I was hungry, you did not feed me. When I was sick, you did, not, uh, you did not visit me. In prison, you didn't visit with me. And they said, well, Lord, when did we ever see you? He said, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you did not do it unto me. And so what happens is that people talk about, we're supposed to minister and serve the least of these. But this passage and its interpretation hinges on two things. Number one, what does Jesus mean in the Gospel of Matthew when he talks about his brethren? And as much as you did it to the, one of the least of these, my brethren, and is everyone one of Christ's brethren? No. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, and this is pretty typical of Matthew, he will use a term later in the gospel that he's defined earlier. In chapter 16, he says, Upon this rock I'll build my church. Well, he's already talked about that in chapter 7. The rock is his word. So upon the word of God, he will build his church. Okay. Well, he does something similar here. Chapter 25, he uses my brethren. Well, back in chapter 12, verse 50, he's already defined that. You remember they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. And he looks at the crowd and says, who are my mother and brothers? These are my mother and brothers. 
For anyone who does the will of God is my mother, brother, and sister. So Jesus picks up this term again in chapter 25. So who are those who are his brethren who are in need of ministry? Those followers of Christ who are doing the will of God. So this is not ministry to the poor in general. It's ministry to Christians that are in need in this particular case. You can use some other verses to take care of the poor. Understand that. But not this text. The second thing on which this hinges is not only the definition of my brethren, but also the reason and the cause of this profound destitute need among his brethren. I mean, look at the text here. Uh, he says in, um, beginning in verse 37, the, they say, uh, you know, the, 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 here are the issues. Hunger, thirst, they're strangers, naked, they don't have any clothing, they're sick, and in prison. It would be very rare and odd among the Jews in the first century for anyone, even a stranger, to go without these needs. They had laws of hospitality, and they were very intense about taking care of one another. The only way someone would go without these needs being met is if someone denied, like a governing authority, denied these needs being met. So here, here's what you have. You've got a person who's hungry and thirsty and does not have clothing. Now that's an odd thing. They don't have any clothing. Jesus would not have any clothing later as he died on the cross. And why was that? Who took it from him? The governing authorities. And, and then they're imprisoned, you see. I don't think these are just individual circumstances. I think they are a conglomerate of one circumstance. What you have here is that you have people doing the will of God, which is in Matthew being on mission and publicly confessing Christ. You have people doing God's missionary and evangelistic will who are in trouble with the government for doing it. And Matthew's writing to some people who are a little nervous and uptight and scared about publicly identifying with them, lest they get in trouble too. Lest they be ridiculed, lest they be embarrassed, lest they suffer as well. And Jesus says, I want you to intervene and risk all and publicly identify with those who are suffering for my sake. And as much as you've done it to the least of these, even the least among them, even the one that if you rescue him or her or help him or her, they're not going to accomplish much in the Christian church. The least. And as much as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, I'll take it as if you've done it unto me. And so we are to have ministries to those who are doing the will of God and who are suffering for it. Through our cooperative program, we take care of some of that. We don't talk about that a lot. Uh, we may need to do that a bit more. But um, Jesus here in this text puts the focus on publicly identifying with those who are shouting loud the gospel of Christ even at the risk of their own safety and their own lives. Now, if Jesus could say that about publicly identifying with those who declare the gospel, what in the world should we do in this community with the gospel of Christ itself? It seems to me, and it makes sense to me, that we declare it, especially when it's not really likely any of us are going to be imprisoned or harmed for doing it. I think Jesus anticipates this back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. 
He says, he who confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who's in heaven. He who denies me before men, one of the least of these, him I will deny before my Father who's in heaven. I don't know, y'all. Looks like that's got application to the crusade coming up, doesn't it to you? It does to me. Let's be busy about it. Um, One thing that we can do to help in a real small way is that once we're done here this evening, John's got need for us to help pack some bags that we're going to leave at the doors of some places Saturday, uh, April 22nd, as we do some door-to-door evangelism. John, did you want to say anything else about that? Yeah, let me pray, and then you come on and, um, and share with us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for making it clear to us, and give us the heart and the fire and the faith necessary to make a difference in the lives of lost people. In Jesus' name, amen.